Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. How can the ancient kings, whose lives are recorded in the Old Testament, and the prophets who confronted them, how can they really speak to us and to the church today? Hello, I'm Mark Rutland. This is The Leader's Notebook. I'm so glad that you've joined us for this particular episode. I think it's going to be a blessing to you. I pray that anyway. I've been teaching a series and continuing that series based on my newest book of Kings and Prophets. If you've missed some of the previous ones, they're archived. I hope you'll go back, listen to every one of them, and then stay with me for the rest of this series. Also, I very much want you to have this book of Kings and Prophets. It is now out to the public, but you can get it through us quickly. We're ready to put it in the mail the minute you order. You can get it right here through the Leader's Notebook. At the end of this podcast, the announcer will tell you how to order this book. I hope you'll get it. I hope you'll get it for others. Christmas is coming. This would be a great Christmas present. And uh, you could do all your Christmas shopping for everybody on your list with one order. Also, I do hope that you will get it for pastors and leaders that you know, both on the Christian side and the political side. And I think it'll be a blessing to them. What we're considering in this book is the interaction between kings and prophets. Not, not a biographical study of the kings or the prophets, but really the conflict, the tension that arises between the spiritual authority of the prophets and the secular authority of the kings. Now, those kings, that can stand for leadership in the secular realm, generals, mayors, governors, political leaders, and even cultural influencers, movie stars and, and uh, athletes, that sort of thing. So this book is about the interaction between spiritual authority and secular power. So we need to start by asking ourselves this question. Who were these ancient prophets? They were people who, first of all, were called into the office of prophet by God. Some were called through truly supernatural encounters, really miraculous moments of divine experience, such as, say, uh, Moses at the burning bush. That's a very supernatural moment that called him into the office of prophet and into his function to lead the people out of Egypt. Isaiah is perhaps the most one of the most famous of all the prophets, and his call report as it's listed in his sixth chapter, Isaiah chapter six, is of the famous heavenly throne room. Uh, in that account of his call, Isaiah describes an astonishingly extravagant vision of the resplendent glory of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, he writes in his sixth chapter, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim. By the way, let me just say in passing, that is the only place in the whole Bible where those uh, spiritual creatures are mentioned. 
Above him were the seraphim, with each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they called one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. The temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, Isaiah cried. I am ruined or undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to Isaiah with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs off the altar. With it, he touched Isaiah's mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Isaiah records in his call report, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, Here am I, send me. So you see that Isaiah's supernatural experience, his call, is just the kind of transforming supernatural encounter through which some of the prophets were called. However, for others, there was no dramatic moment, no singular supernatural experience. It was more than a one-time experience. Sometimes the call experience, their call into the office of prophet, was the result of a lifetime of hearing the inner voice of God. One of the greatest examples of this is Samuel, one of the great prophets. In his first book, in 1 Samuel, the prophet describes his visit to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. He is there to anoint the new king of Israel. It is a moment filled with import. History, virtually the, the future of Israel, hangs in the balance. Jesse is told to bring his seven sons and stand before the prophet. Samuel is willing to anoint any of the young men with oil to signify who is to become the next king of Israel and thus succeeding in replacing Saul, whom Samuel also anointed. Yet God forbids Samuel to anoint any of them. With what was surely a sense of frustration, Samuel asked Jesse one of the funniest questions in the whole Bible. He says, are these all, all the sons you have? As if Jesse might not know. Jesse's answer is also sort of humorous. It's a perfect example of how God works through the exceptional and the unexpected. Jesse says, in essence, okay, there is this other son, but he's kind of a weird little kid. If you haven't ever read David the Great, my book on King David, I hope that you will, where I explore that issue further. Samuel then immediately senses something from God, and he says, send for the boy. We're not going to sit down. We're not going to eat one bite of food until he arrives. Finally, they bring David in, and the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, look not on the outward. That is not the way I look at things. Anoint this boy to be the new king. Samuel does. He quickly anoints the boy, but there's no burning bush. There's no open vision of the heavenly throne room. David is anointed king of Israel because a disciplined prophet knows how, despite what he sees, to hear the inner voice of God because he's been hearing it for a lifetime. So first of all, prophets are those who hear from God. Secondly, 
they speak for God. Sometimes they call people, nations, or cities to repentance, or they summon them to align themselves with God's will. Sometimes they confront society itself at large for neglecting God's law. Throughout Israel's history, prophets were often called upon to confront the almost ever-present sin of idolatry. Many of the prophets, especially those who wrote their messages to the people of God, were deeply concerned with social injustice. The corruption of the law, the exploitation of the poor, the ever-pressing sin of sexual immorality. Prophets were also told to confront great leaders, specifically not the nation, but the individuals, because the leaders, in a sense, did represent the nation as a whole. This was particularly true of King David. It can be said that as it was with David, so it was with the nation. At other times, prophets confronted leaders for their own personal sins about matters in their individual and private lives. Again, David is a perfect example of this. Nathan's denunciation of David for his sin with Bathsheba is, a, is an example. So is John the Baptist's denunciation of Herod for his incestuous relationship with his sister-in-law. This task of confronting and challenging the powerful informs most people's image of who the prophets were. We often think of them as dark and forbidding, mysterious, angry men filled with the wrath of God who fiercely confront sin and wickedness. And I, I do want to say, this is certainly an aspect of prophetic ministry in Scripture. Yet at times, the prophet does not appear to rebuke, but rather to counsel, even to comfort a king. This was the manner in which Francis Asbury spoke to George Washington about slavery. It is also the spirit in which many a biblical prophet spoke to kings and generals. They were sent to provide supernatural assistance. They were sent to announce impending miracles and the care of God for those faithful to him. Finally, we should know that the prophets themselves were not flawless, perfect human beings. The idea that prophets were perfect ignores the basic reality, which is that they were people before they were prophets. The truth is that they were human beings who carried their humanity with them into the office of prophet. Sometimes that humanity really showed itself, sometimes in some really kind of nasty ways. Take the prophet Jonah, for example. Jonah was extremely guilty of a really vile sort of racial and religious bigotry. He did not want God to save the pagans in Nineveh to whom God was sending him. God said, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. But he wanted God to kill them all. When the Lord sent Jonah to Nineveh to call the city to repentance, Jonah sulked and rebelled. We're told that Jonah was furious with God. He even admitted to being so angry with God he wished he could die. The man was riddled with self-pity, self-will, and prejudice. Elijah was certainly not perfect. Though he was one of the greatest of all the prophets, Elijah also struggled with depression and rejection, and a bit of a persecution complex. In fact, Elijah, that great man of God, also battled 
a shocking and debilitating fear which would arise suddenly. Sometimes he was bold as brass, courageous as he could be, and then suddenly yield to this thing of fear. He often experienced supernatural, tremendous supernatural victories. And then nearly with the next breath, he would retreat in terror of the very person he had just miraculously defeated. There is also the mystifying example of Miriam, who is listed as one of the prophets. We're told in scripture that she was filled with envy for her own brother and racial prejudice. She rebelled against Moses in part because his wife was not a Hebrew. She helped lead a mutiny, not only against her own brother, but against God's anointed vessel for the deliverance of Israel. So she was a mutineer. So was Aaron, her brother, and Moses' brother, who was also a prophet. Though Aaron was an anointed priest of God and also a prophet, he made a golden calf for the people to worship. So we find... These uh, aberrations such as these in the lives of prophets again and again in Scripture. Even Abram is an example of this. Though he is called a prophet in the Bible, Abram shows a stunning level of cowardice and duplicity on occasions. He's one of the great lessons for us from whom we can understand that the calling of God does not erase all of our own personal humanity, but uses it. To be used in prophetic ministry, we are still humans, and that humanity can flare flare up in some ugly ways. Thus, the sinful man and the anointed man are often operating side by side in the same body. This encourages me immensely that I don't have to be perfect to be used of God. This book that I'm just now releasing of kings and prophets, which I want you to have, is largely about how divine counsel was expressed through flawed prophets to even more flawed, greater flawed leaders. By the end of the book, I hope you'll understand much more about God's dealings with humankind. More than that, I hope you'll be encouraged about how God can use even the likes of you and me Sometimes I think we read the stories of Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah, and we think, well, who am I? I can't possibly be used. But when we see ways in which they themselves fall short, then we see the ways in which we fall short. We're not necessarily disqualified. We also yearn to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of us. So in other words, their weaknesses and failings are not permission for us to be weak at failures. They are summons to us to realize we come as human beings for God to use us. Now, I I should tell you how I chose which prophets to write about and a bit about the number of prophets in Scripture. I'm using as a guide the work of an 11th century rabbi known as the Rashi. That's not his name. It's an, an acronym used to honor him. His name was Shlomo Yitzhaki. Yet he was revered for his clear and lucid writing about the Talmud, and he is often referred to as Rabban Shel Yisrael, which means the rabbi of Israel. To shorten this, his followers used certain letters from his honorary title to make the word Rashi. 
and that is how he's known to history. Rashi formulated a list of who the Jews consider to be the prophets of Israel. I'm going to work from Rashi's list, except that I'm also including two important figures from the New Testament. According to the Jewish understanding, there are 46 male prophets and seven female prophets. I'm not going to list all 46 of the male prophets, but the seven females are Sarah or Sarai, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, Huldah, and Esther or Hadassah. This list of female prophets reveals much about God's willingness to use women in his work. We need to make sure that we don't disqualify or invalidate those whom God may choose. That, however, that's for another book. In Hebrew, the word for prophet is simply nebi. When the word is plural, then it becomes nebim. In English, when you want to make a word plural, you just add an S, like boy becomes boys. In Hebrew, if you want to make something plural, you add im to the end of the word. So gibor means mighty, and giborim means the mighty ones. I have spent a great deal of time in West Africa, where I gained an insight into the meaning of this word, nebi, which can be translated prophet. It can also be translated spokesman. Because a chief traditionally considers it beneath him to speak directly to other people, the traditional chief in Africa, in Ghana particularly, where I spent so much of my life, had a spokesman who went ahead of him. That spokesman carried a tall staff with an ornate decoration on top, maybe a, a carved lion or an elephant or something like that. And when you saw this staff bearer coming ahead of the, walking ahead of the king, he wasn't usurping the power of the king. He was speaking for the king. You knew that's the one to whom you would address your uh, request or petition or whatever, and then that's where the message would come from. I've seen this many times. The process was fascinating to watch. Someone would approach, maybe me, myself, to make a petition to the chief. Maybe we were wanting to buy land for a church in a certain village. The chief spokesman would listen. Then the spokesman would approach the throne. In, in Ghana, they call it the stool. They would approach the stool where the chief sits. He and the chief would whisper back and forth for quite some time. Then the spokesman would return to his position before the petitioner, sometimes pound his staff on the ground a few times, and then loudly issue the chief's verdict. So it is the decision of the chief through the voice of the nebi, the spokesman. That's actually a pretty clear picture of the role of a prophet, particularly in the Hebrew understanding. The prophet enters God's presence, hears his will and his word, then comes out and proclaims it to the people or to the king or to whomever he's speaking. Just as with the West African chiefs, there's no confusion between the spokesman and the chief. When the spokesman in Ghana speaks, I do not for one minute think he's operating on his own. And if he does, he would be killed. The chief speaks, but he speaks through his spokesman. The spokesman knows his limited, defined role. So it was in West Africa, so it was in Scripture, so it was for the prophets, so it is for all prophets. Obviously, I have not in my book of Kings and Prophets, I haven't included all the prophets on the Rashi's list. I've made selections, and I wanted you to know why. 
I want to deal with the intersection, the clash between these prophets and their contemporary kings. Sometimes there's a head-to-head confrontation. Sometimes there is a gentler interaction involving welcomed advice and counsel, but there's always some intersection between the human, a king, a leader, a general sometimes, and the divine through the prophet. These interactions had inevitable friction. Prophets are all about the heavenly kingdom. Kings are all about their own earthly kingdoms, the natural kingdom. Prophets are all about the throne of God. Kings are all about their earthly throne, their power. So there's drama there. There's contention. Yet there's also wisdom and understanding for our time and our lives. Because we also live in the, in the conflict between the spiritual and the natural. I'm so glad you joined me today. Stay tuned for information about how you can receive my new book of Kings and Prophets. I'm Mark Rutland, and this is The Leader's Notebook. To order a copy of Dr. Mark Rutland's new book of Kings and Prophets, please visit the store at drmarkrutland.com. Enter promo code KINGS30 to receive 30% off of each book, or call us toll-free at 888-823-8772. Thank you for listening to The Leader's Notebook.